Shifting borders. Welcome to Shifting Borders. Fronteras movidizas. A podcast series by Princeton University students about how the forces of nationalism and identity shape people around the world. I'm series host Luke Maurer. And over the next five episodes, I'll be introducing you to Princeton classmates who have reported and produced stories that include the weaponization of headscarves, the erasure of inconvenient history, and the awkward dance of adjustment between refugees and the societies taking them in. Today's episode, episode five, is our finale. It's called Permanent Refuge, and it's about what happens when temporary havens turn into something more. The episode's hosts are Sam Harshbarger and Sophia Winograd. Here are Sam and Sophia. Thanks, Luke, and welcome to Permanent Refuge, an episode about the struggles of identity formation and belonging as experienced by refugees, as well as how the influx of such refugees reverberates through society. I'm Sophia Winograd. And I'm Sam Harshbarger. In this episode, we'll hear stories of refugees from Iraq and Syria as they adapt to societies in rapid transformation. Sam, you talked to Princeton University Ferris Professor of Journalism Deborah Amos about Syria's displaced civilians. Yes. Let's take a listen. Welcome, Professor Amos. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into it. You've been covering Syria for more than three decades now. You've covered the war in Syria, which is now in its 10th year. Uh, You've also covered Syrians who fled the war. What are their common experiences? Well, the common experience, I think, is, is violence. And most Syrians have experienced it, whether they were part of the uprising or not. You know, after 2012, there was essentially a war on civilians, period, by the Syrian regime. They had tried, you know, shooting people on the streets, and that didn't dull the the revolt. And so the next step was just a sweeping charge against civilians, taking them to Syria's prisons and, for the most part, torturing them. Not only torturing them, but putting sporadic signals on social media that that is what they were doing. So that you would know that if you got yourself arrested, that that was what was going to happen to you. And the percentage of people tortured at the end of 2011 was exponential. I mean, Syria was always known to be a state that did torture its prisoners, but not on this scale. Over the course of the conflict, millions of people have been displaced from Syria. Uh, how do you think Syrians' perspective on like the possibility of returning to Syria has evolved over the past 10 years, and where is it now? Look, you stop any Syrian who's left the country and they'll tell you that they're planning to go back. And I think that in the first five years of the revolt, almost everybody was, which is why they stayed in Lebanon or why they stayed in Turkey. But I, I was in southern Turkey at the end of 2014, the beginning of 2015. And I remember interviewing people who were doing worthy projects 
you know, having journalists uh, go report on ISIS or what were what was the exchange rate um, between dollars and the Syrian currency or the Turkish currency. These were practical things that people needed to know. Two weeks later, I'd find out that that person had hired a smuggler and they were in Holland. It, it was like Southern Turkey, everybody left at the same time. I have never seen anything like that. And then I would hear, oh yeah, they're leaving from Lebanon, they're leaving from Greece. It's like everybody got the same memo. We're not going home anytime soon, so let's go find a place that might give us a passport so that we can have some sort of life and our kids can go to school. So that's why you saw this huge exodus through Europe to find the best place to settle down for the long term because I think Syrians began to realize that this was a very long war. You mentioned before that even before the war, Syria was known as a state that tortured its own people. You have you know, extensive documentation of war crimes, crimes against humanity by the Syrian regime, the Caesar file. Um, and so I'm curious, there's been a lot of efforts recently uh, aimed at justice accountability efforts through national courts in Europe. Um, are these seen as credible things by Syrians themselves? Uh, what is the outlook for these processes? So this is really rather new, and the Germans are spearheading this effort because they have a law on the books called universal jurisdiction. And it means you don't have to be a citizen, you don't have to have standing in Germany to be able to bring a charge. Uh, and if there is a Syrian war criminal in Germany, as two have been arrested, uh, then you can have a trial, which Germany did in the middle of a pandemic. You mentioned that um, over half of Syrians are now outside of Syria. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, not focusing on the war, but on the exile and people who are now like abroad, what do you think are like the long term, like regardless whether they return or not, like, how will this affect Syrians' views of politics, of, of like their place in the world? Because this is a, a massive uh, refugee flow exile. I mean, my, my experience is, you know, Syrian politics are as fierce as they were back home. People argue about the trial and whether uh, it is a good trial or a bad trial. You have Syrian feminists that are showing up in Berlin now. I'm just hearing about a program called Radio Hammam that's you know run by very feisty Syrian feminists. Uh, you have very old-style conservative Syrians. There was a man who actually killed his wife on Facebook and was tried and went to jail for it, much to his surprise. And he essentially said, men, you know, your wives are, are not going to be as docile as they were in Syria. And I had to do this, and I did this for all of us. You can go find that news story. This really happened. And I think that there are now Syrian uh, dance troops in Germany. There are Syrian uh, artistic groups. There are Syrians who made it their business to get the first Arabic books into uh, Berlin Central Library. I, I mean, you know, it's, you, you can't characterize people, but... There's this flowering of energy and talent that you know you know was already available in Damascus, but under a lid. And so some people are making the best of that, and some people are terribly depressed because they left the best years of their lives back home.
Wow, this is super interesting. It actually provides a great segue into your story about the refugee experience in Turkey. Yeah, Turkey has taken in more Syrian refugees in total than any other country, over 3 million people. Syrians arrived in Turkey just as the country embarked on a decade of political tumult and economic volatility. The status of Syrians in Turkey has become a major issue in Turkish domestic politics. This all sounds really fascinating, Sam. Let's hear the story. Mohamed Akush is a quick-witted introvert who grew up outside of Aleppo in northern Syria. He had already been in Turkey for four years when I met him at a cafe in Istanbul in August 2020, and he was still an outsider. For starters, he was nervous about taking the university entrance exam in Turkish, a language he was still learning. In Syria, he studied civil engineering. Here in Istanbul, he worked on Bosphorus tourist cruises with belly dancers. And he was nervous even talking about Turkey's founder, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, a revered figure to this day. You want to talk about it? <laughs> if, you don't want, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. Uh, you don't going to put me in danger, you know? <laughs> when I called him this spring, things had not gotten better. He tells me the Turks are irritated when he speaks Arabic with friends. They start telling us, talk uh, in Turkey because we don't understand you, like, in an aggressive way, you know. We feel that kind of talking, a racist thing. Mohammed arrived in Turkey in 2016 after fleeing the bombing of Aleppo. Every moment I saw the plane, uh, I was uh, terrified, like everybody there. So when I came to Turkey, I felt relieved. He had grown up in Syria with idealized notions of what life in Turkey was like. I saw Turkish films on the TV. I saw the, the beauty of this country. We believe that in Turkey, uh, you have more free speech, you have more uh, rights than in Syria. And we hope someday we can, we, we can see Syria like uh, Turkey. He also felt this way because Turkey was only supposed to be a temporary refuge. He thought he would soon return to a free Syria. The Turks thought so too. They expected the Syrians to be only temporary guests. The people of Turkey have this culture in which they uh, want to help the other people. So at the very first, it was just a brotherly attitude by the Turks to help the Syrians. That's Umar Eskaziljik a researcher at the pro-government SETA Foundation, a think tank based in Ankara. I have to say that no one in Turkey for, have foreseen how much Syrian refugees would actually come to Turkey. And uh, the issue is here was many in Turkey believe that war would uh, be over much sooner in, some, in a short period of time. But 2016... The year Mohammed Akush arrived proved to be a turning point in the relationship between Syrian refugees and their Turkish hosts. Three big events shook Turkey and refugees living there.
there was a violent coup attempt against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Droves of Syrians fled north as Aleppo, Syria's second largest city, fell to the Assad regime. And as so many more Syrians crossed into Turkey, a deal with the European Union to keep refugees in Turkey suddenly looked like a bad gamble. From the government side, uh, we have to see that the agreement comes with a great cost for Turkey. Again, Amerez Kazilcik. It basically means that Turkey is the host of refugees who would all love to go to Europe. And Turkey is the uh, symbolic wall protecting Europe from the invaders, in quotes, uh, of Syrian refugees. Some Turks lashed out against Syrians on the internet. They used the term pisiraplar, or dirty Arabs, on online forums to describe the millions of Syrians now living long-term in Turkey. Then, Syrians became pawns in Turkey's domestic politics. Some Turks blame President Erdogan for letting Syrians like Mohamed Akush come to Turkey in the first place. Yesterday, my co-worker, he told me that, he Turkish, he told me when the Erdogan gonna go, you gonna go with them. Uh, I feel sorry for you. Opposition nationalists also campaigned strongly against Erdogan's welcoming policy towards Syrians. The open-door policy will cease. Syrians under temporary protection will not be granted citizenship. Formal relations with the Syrian government will or should begin without further delay. Olabata, who grew up in a Syrian city on the Turkish border, notices how the opposition weaponizes refugees. They are just waving the Syrian card. Okay, we would kick Syrians out of Turkey or we would, for example, find a plan for Syrians in order to move safely to their countries, etc. But which safety they are talking about? Amr Ezkizilcik, the Turkish analyst, accuses opposition parties of scapegoating vulnerable refugees for political gain. The left-wing parties and the center-left parties are against the Syrian refugees, are engaged in racism, are engaged in uh, systematic propaganda against refugees and trying to use it as a political tool against the Turkish government. Shema Nazlı-Gürbüz, the former politics editor at Daily Sabah, a pro-government English-language newspaper, says that even conservative Turks have also turned against refugees as Turkey's economy falters. I'm a Turkish woman, so I I understand the Turkish perspective as well, of course. I mean... This is a very crowded country. It has lots of problems. So when you add the refugee problem on top of that, of course, things are getting much more complex. She says it's a familiar story. When a country faces economic or political problems, its politicians look for a scapegoat. And Syrians were kind of a perfect candidate, especially when it comes to economy. People start to say that they were stealing their money and uh, making our economy much worse. Uh, people start to turn their back on refugees quite quickly, actually. And I believe this trend still is going on because Turkish economy keeps going down. Syrians in Turkey are now at a crossroads. Mohamed Akush says he wants to move somewhere where he isn't stigmatized and can find a better job. I'm speaking on behalf of too many friends of mine 
we share the same opinion. Like, we don't like it here <laughs> anymore. Like a, a young Syrian guy who wants to build himself for our future, for our sake. Yeah. Because uh, working every day here, it's not useful at all. He's found permanent refuge in a country that remains deeply nationalistic and at times intolerant. In my opinion, everything, the political, uh, the free speech uh, has changed. Uh, you cannot uh, cross too many lines here. I feel like uh, that feeling in Aleppo, 2014. Alabata, on the other hand, says Turkey is not like Syria. Maybe, you know, you wouldn't agree with me on the exact meaning of democracy, but for us, the meaning of democracy really is, is different from U.S. into Middle East, into, uh, for example, Africa, etc. So it has different meanings. As part of Syria, for example, I myself see that there is democracy in Turkey. That's what a Syrian friend of mine, Marwan, says too. He tells me about the first election he saw in Turkey. Marwan, who lives in Gaziantep, watched one of his neighbors pick up a poster of President Erdogan. And they spit in it and they swear. You know, no, I started crying because it's like in Syria, if you do like 1%, one, 1% of 100% of what my, my neighbor did, I, I can assure you, they will never see the sunlight ever. So it's like, oh my gosh, being in Turkey, I don't know how, how to say it or describe it. I can't go back to Syria anymore. Back to a homeland, he says, where speaking out even in the tiniest way is a one-way ticket to President Bashar al-Assad's prisons. Yes, Turkey's democracy has a lot of problems. Mass imprisonment of government critics, corruption, intolerance towards minorities. But comparing to us, we, we, we dream that we can reach that, that, that level of democracy, uh, which is the best of, of, of our dreams. Until then, those dreams remain in limbo in Turkey, along with millions of Syrians themselves. Great reporting, Sam. Seems like a pretty dire situation in Turkey with lots of complexity. But a lot of refugees from the Middle East don't just flee to Turkey. Millions have also set their sights on Europe. Yes, and although Syrians are the largest group of refugees, millions of Iraqis have also been displaced in recent years. And after Turkey, Germany was the largest destination for asylum seekers in Europe. That brings us to our next story about an Iraqi refugee who found himself in Germany more than five years ago as part of the great exodus of refugees from the Middle East to Europe. While many Germans, like my uncle Tom Sepesh, who you'll hear from, welcomed refugees into their homes at the height of the refugee crisis, not all were receptive to the rapid influx of predominantly Muslim migrants. The most ardent opposition came from Germany's far-right party, the Alternative for Germany, or AFD. Since the refugee crisis, the issue that has dominated their rhetoric, like most of Europe's far-right, has been migration. Sounds like there's a lot to untangle. Sophia, take us there. Ali Al-Madawi was born and raised in Iraq. In Diyala, 
a province in the east known for its endless groves of oranges, olives, and dates. In recent years, it's also become known for sectarian violence. In 2013, Ali and his father became targets of a politically motivated attack that he gets nervous talking about. All Ali says is that he survived the attack. His father did not. I saw the people who murdered my dad, so they were scared that I would report them to the police. They wanted to kill me so there wouldn't be any proof. I had no choice. If I'd stayed, they would have killed me. Ali initially fled to Turkey. He flew from Baghdad to Ankara and then applied for asylum. But he couldn't study or work in Turkey. So eight months later, he set his sights on Europe. I wanted to go to Europe because it was safe. It's different than Turkey or Arabian countries. There is no war, and the politicians are different than in the Arab world. In the Arab world, it's not safe. And in Turkey, I was scared that they were going to send me back to Iraq. Ali had heard that many Iraqi refugees went to Sweden. He heard that the Scandinavian country rarely turned migrants away. He paid smugglers to take him there by van. Two months later, the smugglers told him it was time to get off. Ali was confused. I didn't know where I was. It was four in the morning and pretty dark when a police car saw us walking. We asked the police, where are we? And they told us that we're in Germany. So he didn't make it to Sweden, but Ali decided he actually liked Germany. He settled in the small town of Latbergen in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia. Latbergen is your typical quaint village in Germany. People ride horses along seemingly endless fields. Everyone knows each other. I've been there myself. My uncle, Tom Sepesh, lives there. In 2015, when hundreds of thousands of refugees like Ali were coming to Germany, Tom was glued to his TV. He watched news about families crossing rough seas in rubber boats, sleeping in the woods, crowded onto trains to reach Western Europe. He watched reports about the wars the refugees were escaping. At one point, the UN said the battlefield chaos made it impossible to count the dead. So they stopped. But the fighting hasn't, and people are still dying. Tom told his wife and daughter, we have to do something. Yeah, we live in a paradise here. We live in a paradise. Yeah, we have no trouble at all. What uh, the trouble we have is, is, is peanuts against this trouble these people have. We are most of, most of what Germany is doing very, very well. Yeah, and uh, no one is really suffering. And when you're not suffering, well, what do you have to lose when you help a little bit? Many countries in the EU shut their borders to Muslim migrants. In 2016, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said Europe had to be humane. Germany is a country which warmly welcomes refugees. And I must tell you honestly that I am very proud that we warmly welcome all refugees. Tom heeded the call. He offered the apartment above his family's home to asylum seekers, including a Syrian family and the Iraqi we met earlier, Ali al-Madawi. 
Ali threw himself into German society. He actively sought out opportunities to meet people in La Bergen, especially through sports. He joined a tennis club, volunteered at the local youth center, and played soccer and volleyball. I started playing soccer, but I couldn't do so much training because of my knee, because the bullet is still in my leg. So, after that, I became a trainer and player. He learned German fluently and started working and dating. He drank beer, something which he says other refugees didn't like. I threw my thoughts from Iraq behind me, but some of the other refugees had a completely different mentality. So, when I drank alcohol, they thought that was really bad. Because to drink alcohol as a Muslim, that doesn't work. In 2015 and 2016, the German Federal Statistical Office reported that Germany accepted a total of 1.2 million asylum seekers. None had visas to enter Europe, and some didn't even have passports or ID. Some German politicians attacked Merkel for letting them in, suggesting criminals and terrorists were among the refugees. The loudest voices came from the right-wing Alternative for Germany, or the AFD. The AFD was founded in 2013 as an anti-Euro party. Two years later, during the 2015 refugee crisis, it jumped on the migration issue. Former party member Francesca Schreiber told the BBC in 2019 that the AFD adopted an Islamophobic and ethno-nationalist ideology. The most extreme ideology is that there are good persons and bad persons, not because of their um, behavior, but of their genetic code. And if you are um, Arabic, then you are worthless than a good white German. That ideology exists. That, that ideology uh, do, uh, dominates the party. The AFD claimed refugees were trying to destroy German culture and traditions. Daniel Drepper, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed Germany, told Al Jazeera in 2017 that the party even used an iconic German tradition, the big beer festival in Munich known as Oktoberfest, to vilify the newcomers. And the AFD used a picture of like really early in the morning where nobody was there. And then they wrote on below it like, like as a caption, oh, see, you can't even celebrate Oktoberfest anymore because everyone is afraid of the terrorists and the, the, the Muslims. And that was like a plain lie because in the, in the like midday and in the afternoon, obviously Oktoberfest was full of people. So they used this kind of things to like rally and right, get, get people like really angry about stuff. Mm. The AFD's membership grew especially fast in East Germany, which has never caught up economically with the West since reunification in 1990. Tom Seppesch in La Bergen says Germans in the East resent seeing their government handing out money and housing to refugees. Yeah, and they said, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. They haven't paid any cent in their whole life into our system here. And now these refugees come and they get all this money. And he adds that the East also doesn't have as much experience with immigration as the West. In Germany, well, in West Germany, we had loads of experience with um, foreign people. Because in the 60s, we, we um, took all the um, Turkish people 
to um, basically yeah for um, to build up our economy after um, in the in the wirtschaft in, in wirtschaftswunder you know the economy wonder in in the 60s and uh, they had to do all these jobs germans didn't want to do so we had lots of experience with foreign people and um, muslim people east germany is so much more like no they are foreign and no 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 we don't we don't want them because they have no experience Ali, the Iraqi refugee, blames AFD supporters for the few times he has felt uncomfortable in Germany. For example, bouncers once refused to let him and two Arab friends into a pub. I said, yeah, why? Give me a reason why we can't enter. I spoke really loudly. I just wanted a reason. He says that all they told him was, you can't come in. That was mean. That was really mean. And I'm 1,000% sure that they hate foreigners, or refugees, I should say. Another time, Ali was riding his bike in a traffic circle when a driver almost hit him. He drove past me, maybe one meter away, super fast. That wasn't good, but I also gave him the finger. <laughs> Ali's friends, though, actually joke that he secretly supports the AFD. Even he has repeated AFD claims that refugees don't work and live off German tax dollars. I know people from Syria, three friends of mine, who work, but I can personally count everyone who works because I know them The others don't work. But that's the government's fault because everything is paid for. Why should they work? Data doesn't back up his claim. A study last year by Germany's Institute for Labor Market and Vocational Research shows that half of Syrian refugees have found jobs and learned to speak German. Back in Ladbergen, my uncle tells me that the AFD has lost significant support as migration has become a backburner issue displaced by a global pandemic. But he is worried that nationalists all across Europe may still sink the partnerships that have helped the EU prosper. In the moment, it's a bit scary what is around everywhere. The US, in, in, in east of Europe, and so many just want their countries the best, not work together anymore. And that doesn't work. It will end in an absolutely catastrophe one day. But we will see. Hopefully not. <laughs> but I think uh, the future is uh, difficult. sees better prospects for Ali, the Iraqi refugee he once took into his home. He proudly recites all of Ali's accomplishments, finding a job, a girlfriend, lots of friends. He's so in here. Yeah, he, he, knows, uh, he knows more people than I know here. Yeah, everyone here knows Ali, and no one knows Tom. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm really happy for him. Ali is now 26 and considers himself a German. 
thousand mal besser. The life here is so much better, a thousand times better, because here I have my freedom. In Iraq, you have no freedom. Here, I can go out when I want, I can go to the club, meet friends, and go to a different city without difficulties. Well, at least before Corona. In Iraq, it's very difficult. There's a lot of police controls. You always have to wait. From what I've heard, it's like traveling between the West and East in Germany during the divide. But even worse. He loves Latbeagen and misses it whenever he goes out of town, always eagerly awaiting his return. Germany is my country, and especially Ladbergen. I can honestly say that I feel at home here. When the train pulls into the station, I feel truly happy. Because, he says, there's no better feeling than coming home to a place you can call your own. Wow, it sounds like Ollie really found home in Germany. Yeah, and he's hoping to buy a house, have a family, and stay in Germany for the foreseeable future. As Tom said, Ollie really made it, especially given the incredibly hard circumstances of coming to a foreign country with no knowledge of the language or local culture. Ollie was able to adapt very quickly. You also spoke to our classmate, Francesca Bloch, who reported on a Syrian musician, Mazen Muhsen. He also lives in Germany, and he uses music to communicate and connect across cultures. He's quite a following, it seems. Yeah, he reinterprets Western music using Arabic arrangements. I don't know if you noticed the music playing under my story, but it was Mazen, and we're also listening to him right now. Amazing. Tell me a story. Hey, Sophia. Hey, Francesca. So you met this man who's both an activist and a refugee in Germany. Tell me more about him. Yeah, his name is Mazen Mosen, and he's originally from Syria, but he fled in 2016 and ended up in Stuttgart, Germany. He's a musician, and he likes to use his music as a tool to try to bridge cross-cultural gaps. Do you know why he chose to come to Germany out of all European countries? Well, to start, he had this really optimistic perspective of what life in a European country like Germany would be like. We believe Europe is a place where you can do anything. Germany is the country of cars and development. There was a fear about being from an Arab country and coming to Germany, but online we saw that Germans are no longer racist. So I thought I would immediately get a job and a house. It was also because he is a music lover, and Germany is the home of so many great musicians. I chose Germany because I love music, like Mozart and Bach. I came here to focus on my music. Wow. So tell me more about his work. 
What makes it activism? Well, he likes to take traditional German songs and almost remix them with distinctly Arab characteristics. He also does the same with Arab songs. It's his way of showing that music is a way in which two distinctly different cultures can come together and create something beautiful. Music for me is a peaceful weapon. It can be used to build peace between different people, locally and internationally. Does he see himself staying in Germany forever, though? Well, you know, Mazen is a fast learner and he's a quick study. So he's already learned so many different German techniques of singing and he wants to learn more. But he can also already sing in six different languages. So he doesn't just want this project to only reach people in Germany, he wants it to be a universal project. Music brings people together. We should use music to help people learn about different cultures, not politics. Music is holy and is an integral part of being human. Wow, what a powerful story. Thanks so much for sharing. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to report, and it's been so great to hear so much of Mazen's music in this segment. And with that, we'll close our episode Permanent Refuge, reported by me, Sam Harshberger. And me, Sophia Winograd. We'd like to thank a few people for helping us with this episode. They include Tom and Katerina Sepesh, Dane Jacobson, Professor Deborah Amos, Dury Buskaren, Meltem Ozturk, Elizabeth Tsurkov, and Tara Kubesi. Music in this episode by Marcel Khalife and the Kiev National Symphony Orchestra, Muzeyen Sayar, Mazen Mosen, Ortokto, Ottoman DJ, Reinhard Burr, the Traditional Music Channel, the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra, and Hendiam Studios. Archive audio from Euronews, the YouTube channel of Moral Actioner, Demirören Haber Agence, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and the Theresienwiese Munich Oktoberfest 2019. This is our very last episode of Shifting Borders. We're passing the mic to our series host, Luke Maurer, for the final credits. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Sam and Sophia. Shifting Borders is a podcast series created by the students of Princeton University's Spring 2021 International Journalism class. Our supervising producer is Joanna Kakissis, the Spring 2021 Visiting Ferris Professor of Journalism. Our assistant producer is Francesca Block. An associate of Hindenburg Systems mixed our episodes, with additional mixing by Francesca Block on episodes 3, 4, and 5. The McGraw Center's Ben Johnston helped us get this series online and onto a podcast platform. Juliana Wojtenko designed the podcast artwork. 
Eric Sutherland composed Supercontinental, which we used as the Shifting Borders theme music. Special thanks to Joe Stevens, Margot Bresnan, and Deborah Amos of the Princeton Journalism Program, as well as Kathleen Crown of the Humanities Council, for supporting student-driven projects like these, even during a pandemic, when we had to do nearly all of our reporting remotely. We would also like to thank the many exceptional journalists from around the world who spoke to our class via Zoom this semester, and whose words of advice helped shape our stories. They include Ada Peralta, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, Mark Lowen, Daniel Estrin, Martha Wexler, Sally Hayden, Daniel Trilling, Riha Malcusa, Andras Peto, Will Dobson, Jess Jang, and Derek Arthur. I'm Luke Maurer, and that's a wrap.